Hey, this is Maya. And I'm Stephanie. And you're listening to The What Project. Where you'll hear inspiring stories of hope. Hey everyone, welcome back to The What Project. We are so glad that you're back with us once again. We have my good friend and Maya's father, Tom. Hi, Tom. Hi, Stephanie. So, Tom, your family lived on a dairy farm. Right. So, because we all like ice cream, we have to know, what is your favorite ice cream flavor? That's the most difficult question of the evening. (laughs) Um, I'm going to have to say vanilla, generally with other flavors combined with it. You know, I'm not much of a vanilla person, but I could see his point. Because you could add any kind of topping you want. You can add brownies. You can add cookie dough. You can add chocolate or strawberry or whatever. So I like your thinking there, Tom. It's funny because I've never been a big ice cream eater. But once I was Dairy Princess and had to serve it all summer long, it made me crave it a lot more (laughs) than before. I've been there as well. (laughs) So, Tom, we're going to jump right into this. Tell us, how did you get saved? What is your God story? Well, I was raised at a time when a lot of young children were taken to church and learned the classic Bible stories, and I did as well, and that God is. So... That's where it all started. In at that time, uh, in probably late junior high, you went to confirmation, and you went through a class to confirm your faith. I don't recall any of the subject matter. All I do recall is that I wasn't comfortable with it. I was not convinced that I was saved. So anyway, that was the norm for the time, to be confirmed, and then you were a member of the church. I was not satisfied with it. I wasn't at peace with it at all. I did it. But I realized the first thing I had to do was, as I got older, decide that God was real, which, as I recall, didn't take a lot of time. I was okay with that. I started to read my own Bible on my own, Um, This was in the late 60s, into the early 70s. So that was not uncommon. The Jesus People movement was going on, and kids had Bible studies at school, and that was all cool at the time. So it wasn't unusual to read your Bible. Not a lot of kids did it that I recall or that I noticed, but it wasn't something that anybody would criticize you for at that time. So it was no big deal from that standpoint. But anyway, in my reading of the New Testament, the one thing that stood out to me is that I didn't have what they had, the Apostle Paul especially. So I knew I was missing something. Didn't know what. So at that time, I believe it was Campus Crusade for Christ was kind of a big deal. And they had a tract 
that displayed a picture of a chasm, a little man standing on one side and God on the other side and the cross in between. And the words that were used was to make Jesus the Lord of your life in that tract. So sometime in high school, another friend of mine approached me with that, and I did that. So to me at the time, that was salvation. But it didn't really bring me peace. When you say you did that, you mean like you read I that I went tract through the tract and... and you know, went through the motions of yeah. admit you're a sinner. Right. The sinner's prayer. Yeah. You know, I don't recall exactly the words of the tract. I can see it in my mind, the picture and the concept, which wasn't really wrong. But for me, it was incomplete. There was an event at the armory at the time, kind of a Jesus people event. And I went to that and went forward, and they really encourage you to speak in tongues. And So I mumbled a little mumble-jumble and got them off my back and, and left. But that was not real for me. So that wasn't satisfying either. So anyway, I graduated from high school, went to school in another town, and found a little church where people actually brought their Bibles to church which was a brand new thing for me. I mean, their own Bibles. They brought their own Bibles to church and read their own Bibles instead of just listening to the pastor, you know, read it or whatever. That was unique to me. Do you remember growing up, did your family ever read the Bible together or discuss those type of things at home? Not that I recall, no. My parents' generation was a generation where they were taught not to teach their kids, more or less. They were also a generation where a lot of them married outside of their denomination, which I think was somewhat new. So a Methodist married a Lutheran, and a, or a Methodist a Catholic, or whatever. A Baptist a Lutheran. And so somehow the couple would pick one of their churches, and then that was their church. So I think because there had been so much conflict over the years, obviously over the centuries, between denominations, the trend, I think, at that time was to not talk about stuff. Yeah. You had a peaceful Because there had been so much conflict, and that wasn't good. You know, I mean, there was a lot of bad stuff that came from that. So it wasn't without basis. So, no, we didn't. Did you have anybody to talk to about your feelings of it not feeling complete or satisfying to you? Was there anybody in your life that you could go to with questions or not that thoughts? I rec- Not that I recall, no. No, I think it was pretty internal. So you started going to the church where people, you saw them bringing their own Bibles yeah. and they had that hunger. That was pretty short-lived. That was a local Bible church in a in a town, you know, that the course that I was going to was only six months or so. It was just a technical course. So I didn't go there a lot, basically just enough to be exposed to kind of a Bible church, you know. Sure, something different than you had seen. 
where people yeah. had more of a hunger and interest on a personal level. Yeah, right. So I wasn't there that long. Then, you know, I moved on, got a job in a different town, and just different things happened. And I ended up going into the Peace Corps, and somehow in there, I don't know how, I got a book by Francis Schaeffer. And in that, he talked about propitiation, the substitutionary work of Christ on the cross. That was new to me. You know, like I said, the track, the cross, or Christ was in between me and God. But it's like that principle was explained more clearly. So that was a stepping stone for me. You started knowing that something needed to happen to kind of restore that relationship, but, you know, it took time to kind of get the answers you needed as to what that actually was. Yeah, looking back at it, it took about 10 years or so. So anyway, I came back from that in, in 1976. You came back from the Peace Corps service? Yeah, yep. Was that a big movement at that time to sign up to the Peace Corps, or what inspired you to do that? Somewhat. I'd been working in Madison, Wisconsin. My dad got hurt seriously, so I came back to help with my brother on the farm. So that kind of interrupted where I was. And by the following spring, he was back on his feet. So I was free to do something different. And the thought appealed to me, so I did it. And so in May, I left. That would have been May of 75. And I was over there until August of 76. And I got pretty sick. I came home early. But in that time, I was learning more from that book, that concept of substitutionary death on the Lord's part for us. So I came back. I met your mom. And we started to go to a conservative Baptist church. So I was kind of back into a church where people brought their own Bibles. And to be a member of the church, you had to give your testimony. So I gave mine, as I described to you, and it was accepted. And Your testimony being that time in high school, yeah, going through the pamphlet. Right. And, uh, and you know, how, exactly how I expressed it to them at that time. No, I just don't remember, but... And we learned a lot, and we were active in the church. And then there was an older couple in the church, and he was a pastor. She'd been a pastor's wife for most of their adult life. And lo and behold, one Sunday, she announced that she'd gotten saved. You know, and all this while, I would still had nagging doubts, you know, not... I wasn't losing sleep over it, but there was just a realization that something still just wasn't right. Yeah, you didn't feel settled over the matter. No, there was just kind of a naggy doubt. So when she did that, and she had the nerve to go before everybody and announce it, that prompted me to really look at myself again. And, you know, it just was on my mind. And it bothered me. And I don't know how long it was. I don't think it was terribly long. So one day, I was at my parents' place helping uh, unload hay. And 
you Were know, you in the that's the kind or, of job. Yeah, I was, <laughs> or outside. I was in the hay. Well, the hot job. I was in the hay mow. The conveyor got blocked as it did. Bales got blocked up, and you had to climb up, climb along the conveyor, and throw the bales off. Baling hay isn't a, an intellectual activity, so there's lots of time to think while you're doing. So anyway, I was thinking about this issue of salvation while I was crawling along the conveyor. And and I got to the point where I thought, well, this is silly. So I stopped and I asked the Lord to save me with a more complete understanding of what I was doing or what he had done. And that was it. I haven't really doubted my salvation since. So I did the same thing. I announced it to the church. Everybody was surprised and some people would say, no, 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 you were saved. And, but I knew what it was for me and what it did for me. So I'm thankful for for her courage. And it was what I needed to kind of take me over the finish line. So that's my story of how I became born from above. You mentioned the word propitiation, substitutionary uh, sacrifice, Some of our listeners might not understand some of those words. So in your words now as a saved Christian, can you explain to us kind of what, in more of a... Well, basically he took the wrath and punishment that I deserved on himself and took care of it. So I didn't have to. Yeah. Jesus took our spot on the cross, the punishment that we deserved. It's a simple concept, but we make it complicated. Yes. In 1 John 2.2, we see that word propitiation used in some versions. And actually in my Bible that I use daily, it translates it as atoning sacrifice. So that says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. It's kind of like the verse that goes with John 3.16. Yeah, and it's illustrated in the Old Testament sacrificial system. Yep. It's a picture of what the Lord ultimately did himself. Right. That The whole Old Covenant is pointing yeah. and directing people to what Jesus was going to do so that it could be recognizable when he did it. Right. And either people are looking, were looking forward to Jesus' sacrifice yeah. and believing in it, or now we're looking backward you know, to Jesus' sacrifice and what he did through it. But for all of us, it just comes down to that belief. But what I think is interesting about your story and so many people's, they kind of have the facts, but sometimes it takes a while for the faith part to catch up. Like it isn't just a knowledge of Christ. There actually has to be a transaction moment where you both repent and believe. And I think that's why I love Romans 10, 9, and 10 so much, because I think it's just so clear when it says that you have to believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. Because I think that 
you can have the facts, you can know it, and you can kind of say that you know it, but if you haven't actually believed it, or you can kind of be like, oh, I think that's probably true, but you've never actually stopped to tell God that and say, I submit, I admit that I'm a sinner and I need forgiveness and I believe that you've offered me that through the cross, then that transaction hasn't happened if you haven't actually done that. Yeah, somewhere along the line, somehow, some way, you have to appropriate what he's done and pass from death unto life. And it can be different for different people, but that transaction has to take place somehow, you know. I think you know what I mean. For in some denominations it's real cut and dried. It has to be at an instant that you can recite. And I think for some people it's more of a gradual process. But somewhere you pass from death unto life through appropriating his sacrifice on the cross. Mm -hmm. I think the other thing to note is God essentially called you and made it clear to you in the middle of a somewhat mundane, unceremonial moment. (laughs) You know, you're just laboring, working, and just to take note that if God's calling you, like stop what you're doing and and answer and talk to him and ask him for that salvation. And it doesn't need to be in a church building. It doesn't need to be with somebody else. It doesn't need to be a formal event. If he's speaking to you and asking you, you know, to repent and receive him, you stop in the haymow while you're walking on the conveyor and you do that. Yeah, he used multiple people at different times to helped me along the way, but no one led me to Christ per se in person, you know. Mm -hmm. That just wasn't how it happened for me. Not that it doesn't ever happen for anybody. Well, I think that's a testament to just how important it is to be faithful with your life, too. I don't know if that woman knows who stood up and said that she had gotten saved after all those years. You know, if she knows the impact she had on your life for your friend in high school, like all of those people maybe won't ever see the result of what their faith and being a follower of Christ did. But Yeah. Actually, I was able to, uh, we got a Christmas card from that couple. Unfortunately, she has dementia, so I don't know that uh, she will ever hear from me, but I was able to tell her husband what that had meant to me, so yeah. which was kind of special. Yeah, that's neat. And that was just this year, so. Yeah. What changes do you feel like you noticed after you had that moment where you understood it and accepted the gospel? Well, mainly just the peace. It didn't really change how I live my life immediately. For me, I know I wasn't a drunk You know, I wasn't, you know, I was, I mean, people told me, no, you weren't, you were saved, you know, you're making a mistake. And so there was no big switch. Yeah, as well, yeah. As far as the world is concerned, yeah. Yeah, you were living your life in a moral fashion. Right. 
which I'm happy for. So in that regard, there wasn't really any big change in how I live my life. Now, since then, of course, I've learned a lot of things. And I, I suppose what I've learned mostly is the reason to live the way I was already mostly living. The reasons behind it, you know, I was fortunate enough to come from a, a good family and my parents were good examples. And, you know, so I didn't have to fight some battles that some people have to fight to crawl up out of the hole. There's plenty of sin in me, you know, plenty of things to battle. But, you know, I didn't have as much baggage as some people have. Yeah. Fortunately, I'm very thankful for that. But I've learned a lot about kind of the why. Why our culture at least used to be more biblically based and how good that was. But without the gospel, all of those things eventually fall away. Redemption is the beginning and, and the key to the whole thing. Yeah. Reminds me of just a verse where it says that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Yeah. Yeah, it starts with revering God and the gospel, and then that is meant to change mm -hmm. everything. So I'm thankful for the background that I had. I mean, I can't really imagine what it would be like to start from a pagan position, and that would be a real steep learning curve. Yeah. So, Tom, you're married, you've had children, you've had grandchildren. How has knowing the Lord and having the Lord and having that relationship with the Lord. How has that impacted how you, you raise your kids, how you raise your grandkids and how you have done family since you've gotten saved? Well, you know, again, we had uh, good examples, but the Bible, the new Testament, you know, there are a lot of principles in there as far as living your life yourself and passing that on to your children and grandchildren, and so that's what we've attempted to do with the realization that everyone has their own free will and everyone has to decide for themselves. So it's scary because you can't force it. You can't make anyone be saved. You can't make anyone believe that God is and and follow his instructions. So all you can do is try to be as good an example as you can be and then try to teach them about the Lord and hopefully an interest in his word and just, you know, pray that they'll come to those beliefs themselves. And we've been incredibly blessed from the very start, Ruth and I thought that the biggest thing we could do for the Lord was to, and the biggest impact we could have on the world was to have children and hopefully get them a good start. And, you know, that that would, in the long run, be the biggest impact that we could have. Well, and I can attest to that because, <laughs> I mean, if you guys... Listeners, if you haven't heard my testimony or Maya's testimony, you know, 
it was because of yours and Ruth's faith and, and how you've taught Maya and she became to the Lord. And because Maya came to the Lord, I came to the Lord. So thank you from one believer who was impacted by the ripple effect that your faith had, because that was just your faith, yours and Ruth's not only impacted your kids, but also impacted your kids as friends. Well, thank you. That's that's humbling, but it's very nice to hear. It's true. And I I mean, I can speak to this issue a little bit because I was, you know, raised by him. But I think one of the things I really value is that specifically that I think came from you was just a love for scripture. And I think you empowered us to know that we could read it on our own and understand it. Because I think... That's what I really hope to pass on to my kids and any kids people let me talk to. (laughs) Stephanie knows this. Like, I just think believers need to be reminded of that. Pick your Bible up and read it and, you know, cross-reference it and study it and memorize it and love it and, you know, apply it. Don't depend on someone else to spoon-feed you. There's great people out there that can teach. There's great resources out there. Use those things too. But don't forget to open up your own Bible and read it and check the other things that you're taking in and hold it to the standard of Scripture because that's what's infallible and that's what's God's perfect word. And the rest of us, unfortunately, can make mistakes <laughs> and have wrong beliefs and say things wrong. But God's word doesn't, and God's character doesn't change. So we have to take things back to God's word and God's character if we want to know the truth. And I think that's just kind of goes back to your testimony, Tom, is just that it was something that, yeah, you had teachers and people in your life who have told you things, but you had to make it your own. You had to make it your own journey. And so I I think that goes back to just, you know, making sure we get into the word and making sure, Hey, you know what? Our, our churches, our pastors, yes, they're, they're pastors and they need to be guiding us, but they're also human and they can be wrong. And that's why we need to check it against the word of God. Everybody's wrong somewhere. Yeah. yeah. Including, like, including us. You know, you just yeah. have to understand that. We're incredibly blessed in our culture to have the Bible in our own language easily available and just a huge amount of supporting studies and, and literature and so you can learn all kinds of stuff told completely on your own. I'm not saying that's that no fellowship is necessary, but you know we're just incredibly blessed, and we still have contacts in the Dominican Republic, and you know there are a lot of places where a person getting their hands on a Bible in their own language is just a phenomenal blessing to them. I mean, it's it's not like that for a lot of people in the world. Yeah. So, Tom, have you been baptized as an adult? Yes. 
When? How? Well, as a matter of fact, I think it was twice because <laughs> <laughs> I thought I was saved. And, and then when I got saved and I was baptized again, I believe it's been a long time. <laughs> but I think that that's true. So were you baptized as an infant? Yes. So you went through the infant baptism and the confirmation yep. process. So how many years has it been since you got saved? Well, I've thought for quite a while that I've, I think I was 25. I'll just say it was over 40 years ago. But I realize more now how much of a sinner I am than I did then. I look forward to the day when I'll be made completely whole and there'll be no more sin nature. That will be a really wonderful day. Yeah. I remember as kids or as a young child singing the song, Heaven is a Wonderful Place. Yeah. And the kids have learned it. And our little four-year-old all the time is singing it. You're like in the grocery store and she's like, Heaven is a wonderful place. <laughs> it's so cute. But yeah, I think the more you know the Lord, the more you long to be in his presence and to have everything restored to what it was meant to be. Is there a scripture <clears throat> or a passage that has just been meaningful to you throughout your walk with Christ? Well, I think the verse in Ephesians, I'm not sure that I can quote it exactly correctly. For by grace are you saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, lest any man should boast. I think that's pretty close. Yeah. It's a good gospel verse. So you mentioned that you did go to your church and kind of tell them that you got saved. Did you share it like with your families and you know was everyone supportive or how did that kind of work out well Ruth Ann knew of course and you guys were married at this time yeah mm -hmm. what we were doing was contrary to either of our families that we came from so we were kind of outlaws we made the decision not to participate in the baptism ceremonies of our siblings' children. And that didn't go very well. But because of our own experiences, we just didn't feel right about doing it. You know, we just no longer believed that that practice was a good practice because people believed that those babies were saved. I mean, they, you know, passed from death unto life. And that was just not our experience. Biblically, I don't think that there's any reason to think that that is accurate. And I think it can prevent people from really being saved, which is tragic. Yeah. And even in your story, <clears throat> that, that was... Part of it, why you felt conflict, because you had gone through some of these motions, yeah. but you didn't feel the the peace of the Holy Spirit and that, you know, sealing. So then 
there was kind of inner conflict for right. 10 years over that. So, no, I, well, you know me, I'm not a real verbal person. So I don't know if hardly anybody's actually heard my testimony, to be honest with you. Until I mean, now. It, it, you know, <laughs> it, it, complete. Yeah. So, Tom, if you could say one thing to someone who is questioning their faith, has grown up with maybe a religious system um, or in the church, but is doubting that they're saved, what would you say? I think I'd say don't deny it. Just look to the Lord for the answer. And sooner or later, he'll lead you to the answer. Thanks for joining us today on this episode of The What Project. If you would like to stay connected, go follow us on Instagram and Facebook. We hope that you have a great week and that you will join us again on the next episode of The What Project.